welcome to We Are History. I'm John O'Farrell. And I'm Angela Barnes. Uh, what are we talking about today, Angela? Well, we are talking about the railway boom, John. The um, railway mania. Railway mania, I, I had indeed. to persuade you to do this one, didn't I? You, you did a little bit. It's not that I've got anything against trains. I just find steam trains really soporific reading about them so i really tried john and there's bits of it i really enjoyed the research of this but some of it i just was that it's it's i think it's ptsd from school i think yeah but it's not i didn't want to do this one because i'm some old bloke who's interested in steam engines and had a train set i'm interested in the social change that trains brought about okay that stuff i can get on board with oh right. get on board see what i did oh that's very good ding uh. ding yeah. Um, so, yes, yeah, so we're not talking about, you know, which lines were put where, although we will do a bit of that. But really, you know, in the first half of the 19th century, Britain went from being a country where nobody could really get anywhere to where everyone could get anywhere. And that brought about major change. I found I had to really sit and think about that, like, because we take it so much for granted, don't we? That, you know, the, yeah, I can get in my ma- car and drive somewhere. I can get on a train and... If you're Dominic Cummings, you can. I had to really yeah. sit and wait. <laughs> <laughs> you're a bit slow with that one. Oh, I mean, can you imagine being believe- stuck in one place? Can you imagine not being able to travel anywhere, never going a mile from where you live? It's, it's beyond comprehension. You know, I've just finished nine weeks of news quiz. I think my satirical brain is just completely switched off now. It can't, it can't cope. I can't believe I didn't spot that. <laughs> so, I'm really crossing myself. <laughs> so trains, trains. trains. So I'm not going to talk about, you know, different locomotive engines and the oh, <laughs> different God types of That's steam. That's the bit I struggle with. I mean, I, yeah. I, I know Stevenson's rocket, you know, a really big moment, but yeah, Christ. Now we're going to talk about yeah. uh, what it did, what it did to Britain and the world. So Britain didn't invent the train and, you know, didn't invent railway movement. Uh, carts on tracks were, went right back to ancient Greece and Wooden rails were used to move rickety carts carrying stone from quarries and ore from mines. Some of that rolling stock still in use in Network Southeast, of course. Hey. But, um, <laughs> you see, John can laugh about this. I live in Brighton. I've not got much sense of humour about the train service on Southern Rail. <laughs> the idea of dragging things on rails goes way back. Is that how they dragged stuff to the pyramids on rails? I don't know. I, th- I think I think they might have rolled them on uh, Tree tr- roll, roll them on tree uh, trunks. I don't yes, know. I think you're right. I think that's how they yeah. did Stonehenge, anyway. But um, yeah, because yeah, no, you were there, weren't you, John? I was. That's I'm that old. So, sorry, I couldn't resist that. Um, so yeah, so there, uh, there was a wagon way. Yeah, you had Sir Francis Willoughby's Wollaton wagon way. That's quite a mouthful, isn't it? Willoughby's Wollaton wagon way. Yeah, back that was in, in Nottinghamshire. Yeah, and yeah. carrying coal and timber yeah. and yeah. Whatever else uh, needed moving around. Then in the early 1800s, they had horse-drawn carriages in Swansea. Mm-hmm. But at the beginning of the 19th century, the steam engine was up and running. And it originally invented to pump water out of mines. That's right. all they invented the steam engine for. But then suddenly there's all sorts of other uses, uses for it. And by the 1820s, yeah. Manchester had 30,000 steam-powered looms. Wow. Millions of people in factories, you know, all over Britain working in factories with steam engines. Mm. And they thought, I know, there could be transport potential for this. We could move things about with a steam power. That's quite a leap to make, isn't it, from a loom to a train? But Well, you I see the wheels all going round, you know. I suppose yeah. somebody would go, God, I had such a difficult journey in this morning. 
Well, how was your journey? It was terrible because the train wasn't invented yet. And it's <laughs> in my head, I just imagine this loom starts juddering across the floor. They go, hang on a minute. But I don't think I've that's got... what happened. Yeah, we apologise for the late arrival of the loom from Chiswick. <laughs> train wasn't the only idea that people were developing at that time. There was people investing in um, hot air balloons as a, as a, you know, thinking that would be the main means mm. of transport. That would have been good, wouldn't it? The London to Brighton hot air balloon. Imagine if that's what had taken off, like what we'd be in now. That's you'd quite... be in the North Sea, Angela. That's what you'd be in. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, they would have... <laughs> we learned that from the Siege of Paris podcast we did. We did, we did indeed. <laughs> and yeah, from and everything Richard Branson's ever tried to do. <laughs> of course, yes. <laughs> I was worried that a man who was trying to sell his mate's condoms, was it more virgin condoms, whatever, was also had a balloon that burst and landed in the bloody ocean it's like it's not a good advert is it i was once in an advert for mates condoms interesting Were fact you? There for you. i was indeed an online advert oh blimey. for How mates that... condoms tell us more angela I, I, well it was my friend was um directing it she got commissioned to make it this was right years ago uh, maybe yeah. early 2000s and um, she got this job to directly and, and basically it was just she had to go to nightclubs all over the country and interview people about pleasure because they were launching this new range of condoms but actually there's a funny story attached to this if we've got time for it I'll be really quick yeah we have gone. on go basically on. they were these really funny shaped condoms that they designed anyway she made this little film and I was in it and they gave her loads of these condoms and a friend of mine, uh, a guy called Grant, who I'm still good friends with, him and I went out after work one night. And Grant is is a gay gentleman. And he crashed at my house that night. And when we got back to my house, I took one of these condoms out to show him what a funny shape they were. And we had a good laugh about it. Anyway, we drank quite a lot of vodka. Both of us passed out on the sofa. He woke up in the morning, saw the condom on the floor, thought the worst had happened and left it. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah. And, I, and it was only the next day, a mutual friend of ours phoned and went, did you, um, did you sleep with Grant? And I was like, no, I bloody did. And nice to know that he'd just leg it if we had. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's lovely. Now, there you go. A little story. Grant, if you're listening, it's okay. Mm. That's the end of our Railways podcast. This time we cover the railways completely. <laughs> No, so a little um, diversion. A little diversion there. So, um, yeah, but, but so basically, the, the trains. Trains yes. turned the industrial revolution into a social revolution. That's what's so yes. interesting about them. For example, in 1830, most people married someone with, from within a few miles of their birthplace. So right. gene pools in Britain were very small, which increased the chances of illness, deformities mm. in people in breeding. For every decade of the 1900s, of the 1800s, sorry, the 19th century, mm. or every decade the uh, gene pool gets wider and wider by, by it's you know, really dozens mad of miles. To think. I'm doing my bit for that, though, John, because I am about to marry a man from Norfolk. So oh, you're setting it going backwards again. I'm bringing again. it back in. <laughs> it's all right. <laughs> but uh, the gene pool got wider. People got healthier. They, were, they, they stopped marrying their cousins, basically, uh, yeah. as I say, apart from your friend in Norfolk. Uh, <laughs> the roads back then at the beginning of the 1830s were still worse than they'd been under the Romans. Mm. Um, in fact, loads of cobblestones have been taken off and used for building. So there was a contraflow at Watling Street. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> it cost a fortune to move coal by canal and then pack horse. You know, you had to put it onto a horse and donkey or whatever and move it across country. And that was incredibly mm. slow and cumbersome. So coal was expensive. Food was expensive. Transporting anything was a nightmare. And that's the thing. You wouldn't eat food from outside your region, would you? You just no, wouldn't. No, no. You didn't get your asparagus 
being flown yeah. in from Zimbabwe every morning like we do now. <laughs> so originally they, they imagined railways, when they had the idea of the railways, they thought this would be, um, you know, moving freight. But mm. they quickly found the main cargo was people. This was sort of not something that they um, foresaw. And George mm. Stevenson, uh, he's called the father of the railways, although he wasn't the first. Been Richard Trevithick in Cornwall, uh, the Puffing Billy, and then there was uh, Catch Me You Can. Salamanca had wheels with, with cogs that slotted into the rails, all these early prototypes. But Stevenson sort of improved in all these early designs. One of the first ones had uh, cogs in the rails and on the wheels, so that there was no slippage. Can you imagine that? Be a bit bumpy, wouldn't it? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Well, they were supposed to line up, I think. Was... Well, yeah, I suppose. Yeah. I'm miming my fingers going into each other there. <laughs> and in 1825, the Stockton and Darlington Railway was the first public steam railway. They used horses as well. They had one engine. It was locomotive number one. Right. So the train spotters. <laughs> Just, which ones have you got? I've got number one. Right. I'm going to wait here for the next one. You could be a few years, mate. <laughs> this railway had one track, so the train would go, where well, they did have more engines, it would go up, mm. up the line and then the other one would be coming the other way. And they'd stand off and they'd sometimes be fights about who should back up the railway line. Wow. Imagine it. The thing that really took off was Liverpool and Manchester Railway. Yeah. And to find the right train for this, they had this thing called the Rainhill Trials, which was a competition. It was a good bit of PR, and they had five different engines entering for this. A bit like sort of Victorian robot wars. As in, these are your 19th century nerds. Right? They are, uh, they're going, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to the, build the best train. I'm going to build... <laughs> these were great engineers, Angela. Sorry. The I'm pioneers sorry. of the I'm Industrial sorry. Revolution. I, 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 I came clean at the top. I struggle with this bit of it. It's. I did play a steam train, though, in uh, Starlight Express on Ice. Circa no. 1987. Yeah, your, act, your acting phase. career is fantastic. So you played a condom. Oh, this is but figure then... skating. <laughs> you had to play a train on ice. Because I used to do figure skate when I was a kid and we did Starlight okay. Express and I was Rusty, the steam locomotive in Starlight Express at Gillingham Ice Dance and Figure Skating Club 1987. Thank you. Fantastic. They still talk about it. <laughs> they, they do. Still they about, do still, still talk, talk about, about my Rusty. Laurence Olivier's <laughs> Hamlet, John Gilgood's <laughs> Leah. And Angela Barnes' Rusty the Steam Engine on ice. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So the um, five locomotives were entered for the Rainhill Tribes. All the others pulled out or failed uh, with various excuses. Leaves on the line, you know. (laughs) Wrong type of snow. snow, That's it. (laughs) Uh, But the rocket one. See, that's the one I've heard of. It's in the Science Museum now. Go and see the rocket. If it's been raining for a very long time in London. (laughs) (laughs) So there's other bits of the science museum. Yeah, no, they're great. The they're great. space bits, really. Uh, good. Yeah. Stevenson, <laughs> at this point, set the standard gauge that uh, we still have today, four foot eight and a half inches. It, was it based on chariots and ancient chariots? People still ask. It's one of those QI things where you, you're yeah. nervous that the, wow, you're nervous wow, that wow. the <laughs> alarm is going to go off behind you. There are ruts, apparently, in sort of uh, uh, bits of ancient Greece, ruts in old roads that are that width apart. Uh, right. Because that was the sort of right width for a horse's arse, basically. Right, yeah. It's thought that he just continued the standard width for chariots and carts. Maybe if some of our listeners could tell us whether we would set yeah. the siren off on QI or not by <laughs> saying that four foot eight and a half goes right back to ancient times. Mm. Anyway, this Liverpool Manchester became the first railway. And what was great was that they were able to transport you know, tons and tons of goods between the two great industrial cities of the northwest. Mm-hmm. And they had to build this thing. It was an incredible achievement. They had to build tunnels and bridges and go across a marsh and float this railway line on this marsh. And the canal owners were crazy about this, really wanted to stop them. <laughs> You know, they had a monopoly on transporting goods and these landowners were doing all sorts of 
mean tricks. And he did a parliamentary bill back then to build a railway line. They tried to block it, didn't they? They tried to block it at committee level and all these powerful landowners were using every bit of influence they could. Which is quite considerable, presumably, because they owned the land. They had to build the railways on it. absolutely. So So there's quite a few diversions for things like that. The surveyors surveying the land had to do it at night because they had thugs out to beat up the surveyors. So it was all very underhand and sinister. Finally, the day came to open this famous railway, the London Manchester, and they had the Duke of Wellington there. They had uh, the local MP, Huskinson. Huskinson, And uh, it's a big, happy carnival day. People waving their flags. All their French revolutionary flags to piss off the Duke (laughs) of Wellington. (laughs) Which they did do, actually. Did Um, they? Yeah, yeah, because all the lefties back then said, down with a bloody monarchy, up with a republic. (laughs) So they said to the posh knobs, Stay in your carriages. Do not yep. get out of the carriage. Well, yeah. well, well, they well, stopped to take on water, right? Yeah, and uh, the, there was no toilet on the train, of course, back then. So mm. Duke Wellington so, got off and stretched his legs. Yeah. And uh, Huskinson, the local MP, went, oh, do you know what, I'm sure I could get back in the government if I had a word with the Prime Minister. Well, they'd had a falling out, hadn't they? That's right. Huskinson yeah, and, sacked, and Duke of Wellington had had a falling out. And um, when he saw the Duke of Wellington get off his carriage, he thought, well, if I go and shake his hand, we can make it all up. Yeah, so, so Wellington he... was the Prime Minister. Yeah. And he wanted yeah. to get back in the government. So he goes, I, what I'll do is I'll wander across this track where I was told not to get out of the carriage. <laughs> and as the local MP, so on the day, the big PR day for opening the railway, the local MP was hit by a train coming <laughs> steaming down oh! the rocket. You know, we called it the rocket. That's because it goes fast, you idiot. <laughs> should have so, laughed. Should have laughed. There's tragedy, quite... tragedy for the Huskinson family. If you're listening to Hus- yeah. Huskinsons, we're sorry. I, the book that I read, which I should probably mention, is Fire and Steam by Christian Walmart. It has a really good yes. description of, of what happened. And it's pretty, I mean, it sounds like you should have the Benny Hill theme accompanying it because he sort of tried to get out the way of the train and then couldn't get that right. way and had to run back again. And it just sounds like it, it just went backwards and forwards and eventually he just got his leg mangled yeah. in a train. That's right. It was, no, it was not fatally, it, it was not killed instantly. They, they used a rocket to speed mm. him to the nearest town, the doctors, mm. but it wasn't that he died of his injuries. Um, so I suppose he got a bit of publicity, you might say, the, but maybe not in the way they <laughs> yes. intended. Depends how you felt about Huskinson, I suppose. But yes, quite. But anyway, the local <laughs> MP was killed, but there was no stop in the train. It became massively popular. People used the Liverpool Manchester for trips and day trips and shopping trips and all sorts of things apart from moving freight, which it had originally been mm. conceived for. Suddenly, trains were a hit. The investors mm-hmm. in that railway were getting loads of money back. And the train age had well and truly begun. So there were lots of people worried about the speed of trains. Yeah. Cause that's a, I mean, they went at this time, what, sort of between 12 and 50 oh, miles no. an hour. Yeah, yeah. They would go up to sort of 35, I think. Yeah, you think that's not that fast. But of course, at that point, nobody's moved at that speed. Ever, Absolutely. Have they? No. And they were looking at passing countryside mm. when you travel at speed might damage your eyes. <laughs> and uh, cows would not produce milk if they were disturbed by passing trains. <laughs> Vegetables wouldn't grow because of the vibrations in the earth. All sorts of crazy opposition was suggested. And of course, for ladies, it would be particularly dangerous. Well, it would be disturbing for their... Uh, for their delicate their, insides. Their lady parts. Yes. Their delicate insides. So, <laughs> but despite all these warnings, people flocked to the railways. Mm. To buy a ticket, you had to uh, go to the station office the day before 
give your name, address, occupation and your reason for travel. Mm. Can you imagine it? It's, it's a bit it's like if you're a disabled it. customer now, that's pretty much what you still have to do. Yeah, yeah. have you got your <laughs> rail card with you? Yeah. Um, the seats were, of course, open wagons with rickety seats, unsprung. Mm. It was very uncomfortable. Mm. The posh people, they thought it'd be like a stagecoach or a cab. <laughs> I love this. And we're just like, they'd just turn up at railway stations and... Take me to Windsor. A... <laughs> exactly, it was like that. They were like, I want to go there now. Well, we haven't got a train for you. And it's like, what do you mean I haven't got a train? Get me, get me a train and take me to wherever I want to go. So they had a bit of trouble, the posh people, understanding that they couldn't just go wherever they want. I think the scariest thing about travelling at this time is there's no signalling, right? Ah, no. You had one bloke sort of running down. If it, was, if it broke down, they had one bloke. There's no telephones, you see. No. So you had to have uh, Jenny Agatha and the railway children waving their petticoats. <laughs> Bloomers torn up. Yeah. Um, oh, I remember that film. Oh, oh. Sorry, John needs to take a moment. <laughs> <laughs> a little moment is remember, Daddy, my daddy. <laughs> yeah, as you say, there was no signalling. Mm. And quite often trains were delayed due to waiting for important people. Ah, yes. Um, which was, the, that was the excuse. We apologise for the late train from Liverpool. It was waiting for important people. <laughs> and everyone's going, oh, that's fine then. That's fine. I don't mind. Yeah, I don't mind being late if it's for an important person. <laughs> so weirdly, miles and miles of canals were still being built at this point because they'd been commissioned and, you know, the work had started. But at this point, they were still in the sort of 1830s. They were still building more miles of canal than they were of railway. Did they think railways were a fad that would just sort of disappear? Yeah, it's not going to catch on. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's, 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 it's just crazy. It'll pass. I tell you, what, canals, mate, that's the future. <laughs> All right, let's go and overtake that train with our canal boat. Yeah. Hang on a minute. Yeah. Oh, hang on. Come on, horse. Um, Come on. But even, even when they were developing, you know, more railways after Liverpool, Manchester, they were still conflicted about whether steam engines were up to the job. So they mm. had steam-powered cables pulling trains. They had horses pulling some trains, so a bit of steam wow. and a bit of horses. And then sometimes the horses would pull the, the, the wagons uphill and then right. they'd jump in their own little wagons and go, wee, wee and right down, down the hill. hill. <laughs> <laughs> that was nice for the horses. And that doesn't sound dangerous at all. No. no. <laughs> uh, and all this investment, there were these new train lines being built. This is all being invested from the north of England. This was right. very much the... industrial the, core, right? That's, yeah, yeah. It wasn't yeah. posh people in London saying railways are the future. It was... The, mm. the, the the factory owners and the middle classes of the north of England putting their savings into these uh, these enterprises, which I think is interesting. Mm. The navvies. Let's talk yeah. about the navvies for a minute. The men who built the railways. Yes, and often died doing yeah. so. As an Irishman from Maidenhead. <laughs> okay. You can hear it in my accent. I come from a long line of, of, of Berkshire <laughs> navigators. <laughs> um, the phrase navvy comes from navigator, which is like the guys who actually cut, originally cut the canals, but the same name was used for the workmen who built the right. uh, railways. These were Irish quite often or r British rural farm mm -hmm. workers who lived in shanty towns along the track of the, you know, the projected route of these railways. They had their wages paid partly in beer quite a large part paid partly in beer and yeah. they died in their hundreds oh, they yeah. were died in landslides and in explosions and all sorts of industrial accidents yeah they used to eat nine thousand calories a day they worked so hard wow. and then they drank hard and they've had fights and basically they were not the sort of chap you take home to your mum no they'd often just sleep where they no. landed pretty much where they'd just find a barn to yeah sleep yeah in or just sleep in tents and yeah whenever my parents had an argument my mum would go irish navvy <laughs> 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 to my dad which is sort of racist and classist it's quite interesting i found in the 1851 census there were three women yeah. 
listed as railway labourers, wow. which obviously, you know, at that time is quite amazing. And in the 1850s, there was a woman called Elizabeth Holman, and she worked for the Great Western Railway as a navvy by pretending to be a man. Wow. There you go. That must have been a tough old existence. I imagine, I mean, what would make you want to do see the life of a navvy and go, I want some of that? That's, but there yeah, she did. Yeah, God, that's it. Uh... She might, life was tough, you know, and any, mm. any sort of, it paid reasonably well, I think, compared yeah. to, you know, agricultural labour or working in the factories. So that's, that's why they did it. Yeah. But you, God, you had to be strong. And the actual physical act of moving all that stone and the amount of railway line that was built in this boom time was greater than the pyramids. Wow. More rock was moved. Uh, it was a greater engineering feat than, than even what happened in ancient Egypt. Hundreds of railways were suddenly being built in the 1830s and 1840s. And it was a huge private enterprise project. There was no government interference. This was lots yeah. of little companies were being set up. People were selling shares. Quite often middle-class people were buying shares in this and vicars and mm. lots of parsons were, were getting their share certificates. It was so going so crazy, there weren't enough printers to print the share certificates. Yeah, they had to engrave uh, them, didn't they? There's quite a lot were being yeah, engraved. And... Yeah, but so much competition and so much mania about it, there was no planning at all. So you had... You know, Swansea, for example, had six stations, six termini. That's mad, um, isn't it? And duplicate it... railway lines to the same place. Yeah, because I suppose, well, you had these small different railway companies popping up, yeah. but with no means really of liaising with each other on what they were doing, I suppose. No, they were, they were in competition, yeah. And I know, obviously, there's a very laissez-faire attitude to government in those days, but I know Gladstone, who was um, president of the Board of Trade in 1844, he tried to regulate the railways a little bit, didn't he? And he, yeah, he wanted to nationalise yeah. them. That's insane. But the bill was watered down because that just wasn't the way things were in those days. And um, But under his act in 1844, the government did have the right to take over new railways, but they never used that power. Yeah, and I think his little uh, board that he set up to liaise the different companies sort of was dismantled fairly quickly. So you had this situation where, like you say, yeah, there were loads of different lines. There's an article in Athenium, the literary magazine in 1843. Oh, yeah. It says, several million pounds has been wasted in building parallel railways, such as the Midland Counties and Birmingham and Derby, which both ran north out of Birmingham. So you had these just this lines going in exactly the same yeah. Yeah. places. And, and they compared it in that magazine to uh, in Belgium, where the government had sort of taken control of the of the planning. where the lines went and the planning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, there was so, none of that. Uh, yeah, so that's why you got sort of really annoying. That's just where I live. There's a Queenstown Road station is really close to Battersea Park station, and there's no interconnection between yeah. the two because they were originally rival railways. You know, it's it's. It's annoying. Yeah, yeah. Cambridge apparently had two lines coming out of London, and that's why even today you can still get to Cambridge from Liverpool Street or from King's Cross. So in the 1840s, half of all economic activity in Britain was related to the building of railways, unparalleled, uh, apart from in sort of wartime. Uh, mm. That's half of Britain's gross domestic product was tied up in the building of railways, all being built at the uh, standard gauge until along comes... Isambard Kingdom Brunel. Good old IK Brunel. That, IK Brunel. That might be a good place to have a cup of tea, have a break, and uh, and we'll um, wait we'll for see the replacement what bus IK service. Brunel is going to do. Yeah, replacement bus service. <laughs> uh, we have to get off this podcast and change onto another podcast now, <laughs> and um, we'll speak to you in a minute. Hello, welcome back to We Are History. Uh, you're listening to us chatting about trains. And we were just coming on to talk about Isambard Kingdom Brunel, the great engineer stroke 
just he was up there Renaissance in Great Britain, man. Wasn't he? <laughs> he really yeah. is. So he he's well known, I suppose, for building famous railway bridges. Right? He built yep. the Clifton Bridge, Tamar Bridge. Uh, Clifton Suspension May- Bridge, was it? Yeah, yeah. Um Maidenhead. What Ooh. did you do in Maidenhead, John? That's your the, neck of the, the woods. The biggest brick arch in the world, Angela. Is that right? Has your hometown got anything like that? Doubt it. <laughs> Maidenhead. <laughs> you know that famous that famous Turner painting of steam and speed? That beautiful painting, that train going over that bridge by Oh uh, yeah, Turner. is that is that That's Maidenhead? Brit- Oh, there you go. I mean, I said Um, yes there. I have no idea what he's banging on about. Sorry, John, yes. (laughs) We used to go under that arch. It's called the the sounding arch, Maidenhead, and you go under there and you can shout and it gets a great echo across the river. Oh, Um, wow. And you can snog under there when you're 13 as well. (laughs) Brunel, annoyingly, had his Mm. own sort of vision of what the railways should be and he had a different gauge. He had a wider gauge to the standard gauge. So... I, I, I struggle to understand this. If your aim is to get travel across the country, why would you not go with the existing gauge? Because you're like, I've got a Betamax video. That is the future. Everyone's going uh, everyone's yeah. to be on Betamax. Or I've got yes. a square reel. Do you remember square reels? I don't remember square reels. <laughs> no, but sky. I can guess what it was. <laughs> it was the it was the square it was the square aerials that British satellite broadcasting had before Sky. Oh, BSB before they were Sky BSB. God, yes, yeah, no, I do remember that. Early yeah. 90s, so, sort of late 80s, early 90s. Yeah, no, that's right. Yeah, yeah, I was, did, uh, we used to do loads of, that's where Jack and I both I, but Talking anyway. about different train gauges reminds me of a story It's from just a couple of years ago. I was doing an episode of News Quiz and this was one of the stories on it and there was a freight train that travelled from China to London and it was this big deal. It had done it in record time. But in the, in the story, it said how the containers had to be moved onto different different trains during the journey because of the different gauges of different countries. And I was a bit like, well, then yeah. that's that's not the same train then, is it? That's, no, it's not. No, it's the no. cargo's gone from China to... <laughs> like, it well, might have been yeah. a bit like Trigger's Broom or Ship of Theseus or whatever. Yeah. It's like, is it the same train? Anyway, I don't know. No, but that's the same chaos that we had in Britain. So you'd have yeah. people get to Gloucester and they'd have to move all the people across the platform with all their baggage and uh, there were sort of satirical cartoons in Punch about the chaos of all this, <laughs> uh, these, these different gauges and the, the, the madness, you know, that it, that it had. I mean, it'd be like now, imagine if all the phones had different chargers and everyone in the house was going, hang on, my phone charger doesn't work for your phone. That's crazy. I mean, you'd never have <laughs> Imagine, 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 imagine. I've just bought a new, I've got, I'm um, using my new MacBook Air I've just bought and it doesn't have Ooh. any USB, so it only has USB-C. It's bloody nightmare. There's tiny little ones. It's really annoying. Really this is annoying. annoying. You have to spend loads more money getting little plugs. Get the adapters. What's the point in that? Then you lose them, and then you. I'm really angry about it. <laughs> Thank you, caller. We were actually talking about um, Black Lives Matter, but your call is valuable to us. <laughs> so, 1842, Queen Victoria gets on a train, and she yes. goes to Windsor. Amazing. The monarchy suddenly becomes this thing that is mobile and yeah. can visit different parts of the country. And I hadn't really thought about that either, that, you know, yeah. the, the, largely your monarchy's London-based and didn't really yeah. travel yeah, much outside she, because they'd have to go in a carriage or whatever. Yeah, I mean, they could sail up the coast and stuff, but mm. it was dangerous. So yeah. she uh, had Balmoral built because it was, you know, or sorry, not built, but had it made a royal palace or home because of its proximity to uh, railways. Not uh, too close, though. She didn't want the railway to go too close, did she? she not too close, no. being able to get there. No, no she, was, she was quite conflicted about the railways. She used to always say, she used to tell them to stay below 40 miles an hour, which, of mm. course, completely buggered up the timetables. 
you've got to, you've got it all worked out when the train gets in, except when Queen Victoria's on, and <laughs> everything's thrown out because she keeps saying, "Slow down, driver." I'm really fascinated by the timetables. Yeah, yeah. Because, um, well, again, it's not dissimilar to the situation we've got now, I suppose, different train companies, but you had so many different train companies and plus people could commission trains. So timetabling was a massive feat, right? So you had this thing called the Bradshaw's timetable and it was George Bradshaw and he produced his first rail timetable in October 1839. Really catchily, it's called Bradshaw's Railway Timetables and Assistant to Railway Travelling. It cost two and a half pence. In 1841, it was eight pages long. And by 1898, it was 946 pages. So within that 50, 60 years, it really... That century, you know, what happened? Right? But apparently this timetable, it was the only timetable you could get, but it was notoriously impossible to understand because the people who published it had no editorial control. They just got all the timetables from the different railways in whatever format they presented it in oh god and publishing it so the different train companies would be in different formats with annotations and footnotes and whatever wow. so it was just completely impossible to read but they survived the bradshaw's timetable survived until 1961 uh, and then wow. british rail took over timetables were abolished completely in 2007 when you just got the national rail inquiry oh that's amazing isn't it it's just that chaotic sort of system yeah um, absolutely I mean, the um, usage of the trains was for all. That's the other thing. It wasn't yeah. just for the middle for the classes who could afford it. The, the one thing Parliament had done is to uh, insist that trains should be put on for the poor. Yeah. There were, there were, there were uh, very low fares. And these were usually put in by the train companies at the worst times, at least convenient times. But they did have to be there and people did use them. Yeah, this was under that same act, the Gladstone Act of, of 1844. Every train right. company had to guarantee at least one train a day for poor passengers. Uh, that went a minimum speed of 12 miles an hour and a fare of... dream of that, Angela? In Brighton, you're not (laughs) kidding. (laughs) And a fare of not more than a penny per mile. Right. Wow, Okay. Yeah, and they were known as parliamentary trains. And like you say, the train companies would put them on at really inconvenient times, like early in the morning. They'd often have um, the same route, but they'd have faster trains and slower trains, and the slower trains were for the... Poorer people, yeah. obviously. And sometimes the poorer people got to their factories like two hours before they opened because yeah. that's when their train was and had to hang yeah. around. You know. Exactly. And they some operators briefly had fourth-class trains, um, which wow. were basically open-sided wagons. So one of the most comfortable rides. <laughs> yeah. But um, because the third-class rail was so popular, the fourth-class didn't last very long. I should say the whole notion of class and the... The, the phrase class, for where, the way we use it in terms of social class, was popularised mm. via the trains. Yeah. So, of course, people were aware that they were uh, the nobility or whether they were labourers. But using the word class mm. uh, to, to, to denote which social you know, strata you were in, yeah. um, that came from the from first class trains, second class tickets, third class tickets. And um, uh, we've been using it ever since. I mean, the train companies did realise like 50% of their passengers were paying third class fares. So they did realise yeah. it was a market they could make a profit on and did yeah. realise it was in their interest to provide those services. So, so it meant people who could see parts of the country they never would have hoped to see before, working class people. Absolutely. I mean, uh, they reckon that one, one countryman 
in a hundred had been to the metropolis. Mm. And after the railways, one in a hundred had. Yeah. You know, to have seen the city or to have been to London or to have seen the sea. See, absolutely. These are things that never would have happened to you in your lifetime before the trains. And then suddenly you the it was industrial easy Midlands, and affordable. The sea was yeah. as alien to you as the moon, you know. Absolutely. Up to this point. So, I mean, which I, you know, for my money, it's, it makes the trains one of the biggest sort of inventions and social developments in history. It's bigger than splitting the atom. It's bigger mm. than the internet. It's bigger than the non-slip bath mat. It's that big. <laughs> Absolutely. And also, it was, you know, we laughed before about the, the chaos of the planning of the railways, but the fact that yeah. so many routes went the same way made it affordable yeah. for poorer people because the rail companies yeah. had to compete with each other, which kept the prices low. There could be a good, strong uh, conservative argument for the competition of the railways and look how much was achieved I, by I private enterprise. I lost just my internet. That's because I started putting a conservative case across. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah the internet cut I, off. I've got left-wing internet. I'm sorry. No, it's not going to work. I'm trying to make this right-wing argument for the trains, but it's not going to work. I mean, I'm saying it was bad that it wasn't planned and it needed government planning, but private enterprise and exploiting navvies and lots of people dying got railways built and lots of Tories would put a, a case that this is how it sh things should be done. Uh, so, yeah, uh, but, you know, the lefty case would be, yeah, but hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people died. <laughs> so you could go to the yeah, seaside. But, so, yeah, you know, yeah. swings and roundabouts. Sure. Um, uh, yeah, so like Derby yeah. had a station that ran three different routes. So, like you were saying, there's, there's yeah. chaos, really. It's like charter flights. It's like yeah, you know, absolutely. everyone's going crazy and never mind the cost. I quite like this, though, because excursion trains became a thing. And this is a sort of rail version of, of charter flights. And what would happen is entire trains would be put aside, if you like, for these day trips or holidays for groups of people. So they'd be cheap to run because they'd be filled yes. to the brim with day trippers. So you could take people from Manchester or wherever down yeah. to the seaside for the day or, you know, on holiday for a week, whatever. Um, there'd be Sunday school outings. Uh, groups could hire carriages or entire trains. Yeah, that was very um, popular, You could go yeah. to the races. In 1840, 24,000 people were ferried between Glasgow and Paisley for a two-day race meeting. I mean, the whole notion of amazing, um, isn't it? seaside Which... towns with their piers and their amusement arcades and their boarding houses, that's because mm. trains made those trips possible for people. So Blackpool, as a destination yeah. for the people of Manchester happened because of the trains. Skegness is so bracing, you know, people would not have known how bracing Skegness was if they couldn't get there by train. Because so, uh, up to that point, it had been for rich people, yeah, the seaside. Yeah. And, uh, you know, whereas now the working classes could fly. Thomas Cook, yes. uh, would Thomas Cook have existed without the trains? Probably no. not. He organised an excursion to a temperance fate. Doesn't that sound Rock like a barrel of laughs? Imagine a fate without booze. <laughs> he took 500 people from Leicester to Loughborough. Okay. It cost a shilling and it included food. And that was the start of that enterprise, really. By 1872, Thomas Cook was offering round-the-world trips. That was the first example of a train being booked by a travel agent rather than an individual. And that suddenly became big business, this excursion. That's the beginning of the business. travel industry then, really. Absolutely. Absolutely. You have people doing um, day trips to Brighton in 1844. There was one Sunday, I think it was, where 1,700-odd people got in 46 carriages to go from London to Brighton. And it was so popular that 300 people got left behind. Do you know why I think they had no booze at this fate? Go on. Because, because there was no toilets on the trains. Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> so can you imagine if everyone had loads of pints and then they came and there was no toilets on them? <laughs> what would have happened? 
Because <laughs> it wasn't until the 1870s that they put a toilet on a train. No, no. Well, they used to have lunch stops, didn't they? So if you were going yeah. from London to Scotland, you'd have a lunch stop. But the lunch stops got increasingly smaller as the companies yeah. were competing with each other to get there faster. Yeah. So suddenly your 45-minute lunch stop to have a bite to eat and a wee became 20 minutes because the train company wanted to beat the other train company. Well, they had like uh, 100 chaos. toilets and one for the ladies. That's probably what they had. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah, so no toilets to 1870s. Remember these trains didn't have corridors on them. The seating went right across. So lots of carriages mm. where you just got in uh, from the side door and that's where you sat. So those were actually yeah. places were quite vulnerable as well. So... If you're a woman sat on one of those uh, seats and a man got on, you were stuck in that carriage with him all the way to yeah. the next stop. And so there was a, that was a, quite a risky way of transport for the single woman. And then it wasn't until the 1880s they had uh, gaslighting and heating. And then, of course, the Pullman. The Pullman uh... Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, they were catering for the working classes in a way that had never been done before. But then you did have first class absolute luxury. You had the Pullman, which is named after an American railroader called George Pullman. And there were these just luxurious first-class coaches with a steward service. And they ran sort of from the 1870s right up until, well, up until privatisation, really, and then um, carried on with British Rail. The first one was went from Bradford to London St Pancras. Uh, they were built in Brighton. The Pullman cars have workshops in Brighton. Yeah. Um, and the London to Brighton and the South Coast Railway was the first railway to operate a complete Pullman train, so a complete right. luxury train you know the metropolitan line which is now part of the tube service that used to have uh, dining cars mm -hmm. on it in the morning you could have breakfast on the way into work into london and in the evening they'd have dinner you'd have dinner served on the tube on the way home so can you imagine that so i mean that civilized wouldn't that make commuting so much nicer if you could have your breakfast sit down on and have your breakfast I mean, I do served on the tube it wasn't a tube yeah. train then it was part of it was an independent railway line but you know it was that line <laughs> Food, of course, itself was transported all over the country and milk mm. was brought into the city. So in Cheshire, there were uh, dairymen who no longer had to make cheese with their milk. They could sell it more cheaply to go to the big cities. Mm. And in, in, within London itself, you no longer needed to have cows everywhere in, in backyards being milked. Mm. London's milk was supplied by London before the railways. Yeah. All the vegetables and all the sheep didn't have and cattle didn't have to be walked into Smithfield Market. Mm. They were brought in by trains. They didn't lose loads of value being walked from East Anglia or wherever. The know? other side of that, I suppose, was that well, for a start, farms struggled to get farm labour because labouring yeah. on the railways and working on the railways was a far more attractive and well-paid prospect. And also, it did mean because milk and other agricultural products could be bought from further away. Yeah that you suddenly had more of a market to compete with. So yes. it did drive down prices. Um, so some farmers struggled. Other people that struggled, of course, were the coaching inns. There were lots of towns such as Hounslow, which had been a major staging post. It would have 2,000 horses wow. uh, staged there, you know, before trains. But the, the inns all shut down and the village became... Yeah. Pretty desolate. Until it got um, Heathrow, yeah. <laughs> the, the, there was a place called, yeah, absolutely. The, the Bear in Maidenhead had to shut down because... It, well, they yeah. opened it up again. They opened it up and they made their business by serving underage drinks. That's, <laughs> that's, that's, Good to know. They found we, a way around found, the problem. We'll serve, we'll serve John and his friends when they're 15. <laughs> <laughs> and also what I found really interesting, like local shopkeepers suffered. And it's the same like now with the retail parks, I suppose, out of town retail parks. Yeah. The local shopkeepers were like, well, people are getting on the train and going to Manchester to do their shopping. I know, rather yeah. Rather so than like, yeah, shopping like locally. Blue, you know, so. Lakeside Thurrock, it was the modern equivalent. It was the, the old equivalent. 
Absolutely. One thing I did like, because agricultural products could be moved and wet fish could be moved, it yeah. meant that it took fish and chip shops inland. Oh. So up to this point, fish and chips were very much a seaside delicacy. Oh, wow. But now you could get your fish and chips in Birmingham or Manchester or wherever. So it really brought fish the to whole, the masses. Uh, fish and chip. Yeah, it brought fish and chips on a Friday night to the masses. Uh, one other thing we should mention is that uh, time itself had to become standardised because everywhere mm. across Britain, uh, the time in Reading would be five minutes different to the time in London. And that would be five minutes again different in Swindon and five minutes again in Bristol because people adjusted Same their yeah. clocks to the sunrise and sunset. Uh, mm. And so the, the, the early timetables had to explain this. Not only did they have all these things that said... No, once right, they were uh, 900 pages long. Yeah, it was like, <laughs> the train will get into Reading five uh, minutes after GMT. Takes an hour to get to Reading, but you've got to add on five minutes, take off five minutes of the local time adjustments. So the whole of Britain eventually wow. um, uh, moved to uh, Greenwich Mean Time, London time. I don't think I had realised that had happened so late. Yeah, I just assumed that had happened much, much earlier. Because it used to take you, a, you know, several days to get to Cornwall. You sort of adjusted your watch gradually as you went down there. And your watch was pretty unreliable yeah. anyway. But once the train started happening, that was a sort of um, yeah. a, a standardisation that had to come about. Things like um, crowding around a bar in a pub, that sort of came from the railways. I, I understand. I'm not sure about this. I didn't read this in any of the books I was reading this time around. But I heard, heard have it on a good authority. From this is hearsay and conjecture. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's conjecture. But but before railways, in pubs, you'd have someone come over with a tray of drinks and get them from the kitchen or whatever. And then the, the because right. of the crush at railway stations, they had people lining up at bars and trying to get served. So all that men oh, barging in front of women. Yes. That's all thanks to the railways as well. <laughs> Typical. So, so, you know, they, they transformed society in many, many ways. I think ways. it's worth saying as well, it wasn't all great for poor people because obviously it was poor people that often got displaced by the building of the railways because um, rich landowners Absolutely. were able to buy their way out of their land being, you know, or, or refuse to sell their land yeah. or whatever. So it was often the poorest parts of villages and, and towns that got destroyed. They'd cut right through cities. And the concept of wrong, wrong side of the tracks, mm. you know, that comes, of course, from railway building. You'd suddenly carve uh, a bit out of a town and the only one or two tunnels to get through. And suddenly this sort of like, like in the way that a modern freeway does in the United States yeah. suddenly puts you on the wrong bit of the city and there's a blight on that part yeah, of town. Yeah, can't reach the amenities you could reach before and yeah. There were of course terrible accidents, uh, terrible crashes. Yeah. You want to say anything about uh, these, well, uh, Were you going to talk about the military uses? When the Crimean War happened mm -hmm. and when the Boer War happened, they suddenly realised that you could you know, use the trains to move soldiers very quickly. Again, that was another thing I hadn't really thought until that point. Entire regiments would take days to march across the country, whereas now you yeah. can put troops on a train and I think Liverpool and Manchester won the contract yeah. for the government to carry soldiers and their baggage. And I love, I was reading about this and it said, women, in inverted commas, belonging to the regiment could be conveyed free of charge as long as there was no more than one woman to every 10 men, which I thought that reads really badly. <laughs> she must have been exhausted. <laughs> um, but what do they mean by that? Do they mean... Well, I suppose if you had mean, uh, women uh, that... Camp followers? I guess they were women who, well, maybe even prostitutes. I don't know. Or maybe women who yeah. were just associated with the regiment. Maybe they washed their uniforms. Maybe they did their darning wow. or whatever. I don't, I'm just guessing. But you could have yeah. one woman for every 10 men could travel with them on the trains. Charles Dickens is worth a little mention. I think we were yep. talking about trains. He was an outspoken 
critic of of railway companies and their lack of safety policies. Um, so we, we're not going to dwell on rail accidents here because it's a bit grim, but there were a no. lot of them during this period. Yeah. Um, and Charles Dickens was in a rail accident uh, in 1865 in Staplehurst, which is not far from Maidstone, where I grew up. Uh, it was on the southeastern right. line and it was caused by <laughs> a railway worker was replacing a bit of track and he had an 85 minute window where he knew there were no trains going right. to be on that bit of track to replace the bit of track. Um, unfortunately, he misread the timetable. So before he could lay oh, the no. track, a train came along and uh, obviously was derailed and ended up in a stream. Uh, Dickens was on board. Charles Dickens was on board with his mistress and her mother. They were all fine. Ten people died and he went around. He had lots of brandy on him. So he went around giving brandy to the people that were injured. Uh, like a sort of... St Bernard's St Bernard, yeah. Um, but he became a really stringent campaigner for improved safety on the railways. And people say that he never got over this accident, sort of witnessing it. And in fact, he died five years later on the anniversary of the accident. Wow. But then 1874, nearly 10 years later, there was the first Royal Commission on Railway Accidents. Lots of accidents happened, famous ones, Taybridge, Quintins Hill. I'm just going to mention there's a... a, a friend of mine who does a brilliant podcast which i'll do a little plug for called crash bang wallop and it's all about disasters um uh, be it be it economic disasters or actual disasters and things it's really interesting and really well done and they did an episode on the quintins hill disaster which happened in gretna but the accident that really changed things was in armagh in 1889 um lots of children died because what they would do is they would lock people into their carriages so that people can jump on the trains well it wasn't stop them getting out as it was to stop people jumping on the trains as they stopped in the countryside so when the when the train crashed no one could get out of the carriages and uh that's what it took that accident for legislation to change but obviously it wasn't just traveling on the railways that was dangerous it was working on them yeah they were overworked often overworked and undereducated for the jobs they were given working really long hours uh, and it took a long time for them to get unionized yeah but i mean in the 1900s basically all the british lines were built the last major one opened in 1899. Now, I'd say the peak of the railways was the Edwardian era. We won't do the whole 20th century history of the railways. It's about how the railways changed Britain. That's but, a, whole um, other episode, a whole other thing. Beaching and all of that business. All that, uh, after the First World War, you have the rise of the motor car and the buses. Remember, they didn't pay for their own infrastructure. They didn't have to pay for the roads on which they ran. Mm. And the trains were nationalised after World War II. Then you have the beaching cuts in the 60s. Savage cuts yep. uh, to the railways yep. when there were over half of the lines were cut, the branch lines. And then uh, finally privatised by Thatcher. And... Didn't privatisation happen under Major? Oh, you might be right, actually. It might, I don't know. Yeah, yeah it was in the 90s. God, there still, yeah, yeah. yeah you, I think it was under Major. Right. Yeah, it was that sort of... But we'll blame her. The fag end of the Tory administration. But still, you know, they spread all around the world, this, this uh, British invention. And I'd say it's still a safer, greener... Uh, more effective way of travelling than driving or flying. When it works, it's brilliant. When but it works, I live in brilliant. Brighton, so <laughs> I, it regularly doesn't work. Yeah. We get replaced with buses pretty oh, yeah. much every weekend here, um, which is really frustrating. And I remember the comedian Sean Walsh used to have a bit about it where he used to say, imagine doing that in any other 
sort of form of transport. You know, you book a taxi and they're like, we haven't got any taxis, but Dave's going to come around and give you a piggyback. It's like yes. you can't <laughs> book one form of transport and get something worse, you know, but that's what happens. Yeah, but it's, um, <laughs> it just needs investment. I mean, the, the trouble with trains is you, they need to be seen in their wider economic value. So they need to be subsidised, you know, to make sure that, that uh, mm. they're effective and help the economy run smoothly. They're not everything. Not everything can pay for itself. No, and in so many countries seem to get it right, yeah. yet we seem to get it so very wrong. Yeah. In most of Europe, train fares are manageable and affordable and, yeah. you know... And the other countries don't have to have that joke to on so the, in the virgin toilet about flushing down oh, your don't. boyfriend's jumper. I am so bored of that joke. <laughs> so It's gone now, hasn't it? Has it on gone? The East, East Coast trains, now Virgin haven't got them. What they've done, you know, oh, okay. all the um, pictures on the trains, what they've done, where it used to have the Virgin balloon logo, is they've just print, painted over the Virgin on the balloon, so it's just pictures of hot air balloons now. Okay. Well, that's, that's a small price to pay for the failure of that line. I think we've covered the yeah. early days of the railway. Uh, as you, you mentioned the book once already, but it's the same one that I read, Fire and Steam, How the Railways Transformed yes. Britain by Christian Woolmar. There's many, many books on the histories of the railways, but that's the one we both read. Another book I read was The Railways, A Nation, Network and People by Simon Bradley. Also, uh, Thomas the Tank Engine by the Reverend. <laughs> so, uh, we've all done really sort of deep academic we'll research this one. <laughs> that's The Railways Covered. Send us your suggestions for so. podcasts. Please do follow us on Twitter at We Are History Pod. Yeah, we're a bit useless on Instagram, you... but Twitter, Twitter, we're a bit busy. Right? Yeah, don't bother on Instagram. Please do continue to give us reviews. Thank you to Spike, our producer, for putting up with our nonsense. We'll catch you next time. We'll catch you next time. We should just point out we are doing this over the dodgiest Wi-Fi connection ever. So yeah. this has been quite stoppy starty. Hopefully, by the time Spike works his magic and it comes to you, it'll, it'll all make sense. As a tribute to the British train system, it's been stoppy starty. We've had technical <laughs> problems. We've had the whole thing. And um, leaves on the line. We've had leaves on the line on the internet. That's We Are History for yes. this week. Catch you next time. Bye. <laughs>